Until COVID restrictions were put in place, the pilgrimage of Muslims to Mecca was one of the largest religious gatherings in the world, averaging over 2 million pilgrims every year. They came from over 70 nations, and it was indeed an amazing event. But even more amazing is the fact that 2,000 years ago, long before modern transportation made it possible to, to jump continents in minutes, two million Jewish pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem every year for Passover. That's according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. Now, Josephus has been known to exaggerate, but the feasibility of his count is confirmed by a census of lambs slain that was taken at a Passover during the same time period. That year, 256,500 lambs were offered. And since each lamb was to serve a minimum of 10 people, somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million people must have been at that Passover. Now, we don't have a count of pilgrims at Passover the last year Jesus attended, but it was probably around the two million mark. And it was no doubt the world's largest religious gathering of the day. It was to this gathering that Jesus was heading when he arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover. Now, Bethany, as we've noted before, was two miles to the east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus with whom Jesus stayed when visiting in Jerusalem. After having supper with Jesus and the disciples, Mary performed the act of extravagance that we witnessed last week. She anointed Jesus' feet with a pound of pure nard. It was a special oil that was worth almost a year's wages. An amazing, extravagant act of love. But by the time the supper was over, a great multitude had poured into Bethany. They had heard that Jesus was there, staying at the home of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead a couple of months earlier. Now, since Lazarus lived in Bethany and the crowds hadn't come sooner, it's likely that he had been hiding somewhere else since being raised. But now they knew he was home, and they really wanted to see Lazarus. Picking up our study in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and we're believing in Jesus. Now, we're accustomed to multitudes gathering to see Jesus. But John points out that this multitude didn't just come to see Jesus. They also wanted to see Lazarus. And who can blame them? You know, they had heard about this man who had been dead four days and then brought back to life. They wanted to see him, to hear his story. 
If it were today, he would be an instant celebrity on all the talk shows. You know, 2,000 years ago, people were just as curious, and they wanted to see Lazarus. However, some didn't want anyone to see him. In fact, the chief priests wanted to get rid of him for a couple of reasons. First of all, many of the Jews were leaving their flock and following after Jesus. They were believing in him because of what he had done to Lazarus. And to make matters worse, the chief priests were Sadducees. And as you may recall from VBS or Sunday school, they were sad, you see, okay, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that no life of any kind existed after death. But here was a living corpse, a man who had died and had been brought back to life. He was an embarrassment to their theology. But rather than rethink their theology, they decided to destroy the evidence. They wanted to kill Lazarus. You know, they were like those today who, who don't want to be disturbed by the facts, who are happy believing what they want to believe, who don't want their beliefs challenged, so they dismiss the evidence or hide it or destroy it or discredit it. You know, that's something we should never do because if beliefs are true, they will survive examination. We have nothing to fear if we are committed to the truth. Now, when challenges are presented that go against some aspects of our beliefs, we may not like it, but we must examine them to see if they're true or not. And if we find that we have been in error, we may have to make adjustments to our beliefs. But there's no need to suppress the evidence. Not if we really want to know the truth. And we're kidding ourselves if we settle for anything less because believing a lie does not make it true. The chief priests thought killing Lazarus would solve their problem, but it wouldn't. Too many people had already seen him, and the evidence was overwhelming. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And as a result, the multitudes wanted to praise Jesus. Let's read on. The next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Jesus was the topic of conversation in the temple and had been so for 
all the days of the purification, while the pilgrims were getting ready for the feast, everyone was trying to guess whether or not Jesus would come. You know, the priests had given orders for his arrest, and most assumed that Jesus would stay away, but when word reached Jerusalem that Jesus was coming, the great multitude that had assembled for the Passover took palm branches and went out to greet him. Now, they may have already had some palm branches with them for the festival because the waving of palm branches had become a part of their celebration. But the other gospel writers add that they started stripping the trees on the way to meet Jesus. Everyone wanted to get in on this. Many even threw their robes on the road to give Jesus the red carpet treatment. It was an unbelievable scene. Pilgrims coming with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem, and perhaps thousands coming from Jerusalem to meet him. The great multitude probably met on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and when they met, they began crying, Hosanna, which means, save us, save now. They were crying out for Jesus to be their savior, but they weren't thinking of spiritual salvation. They wanted a political Messiah who would save them from the Romans. They even sang a political psalm to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They wanted Jesus to be their king. They wanted a king to lead them in victory over Roman rule. And who could better be king than one who raises the dead? Now, the multitude had tried to make Jesus king after he fed the 5,000, and now they knew he could raise the dead as well. Who wouldn't rally behind a king who could feed the troops and raise those killed in battle? But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He had no intention of being a political-slash-military ruler. How could he get this across? to the massive multitude of palm-waving, psalm-singing pilgrims. He tried by doing something he thought they would understand. He sent a couple of disciples ahead to Bethpage to get the colt of a donkey to ride into town. And the symbolism of riding a donkey should have said something. You know, a conquering king always rode a mighty steed into town. Jesus was coming instead as the Prince of Peace. But even his disciples didn't understand what he was doing, at least not then. It was only after he was glorified, after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, that they understood what riding into town on the colt of a donkey signified. Only then would they understand how it fulfilled the prophecies. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 in particular. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations.
and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It was never intended that the Messiah would set up a physical kingdom in Israel. The kingdom of God would be spiritual. It would be located in the hearts and lives of believers throughout the world. But that moment, the multitudes didn't understand that. All they knew was that they wanted to see Lazarus, praise Jesus, and meet them both. Reading on. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him a witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed the sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. There were many in the crowd who had been present when Jesus raised Lazarus. And they were confirming what the others had heard. Jesus really did it. Lazarus had died, had been buried for four days in a tomb, and had been called back to life by Jesus. After the stone had been rolled away, Lazarus hopped to the opening, still bound in his grave clothes, until Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Over and over again, the witnesses told what Jesus had done. And because of their testimony, the people were even more intent in their desire to meet Jesus and Lazarus, who is probably now traveling with Jesus to Jerusalem. Everyone wanted to meet them. The excitement was so thick you could cut it with a knife. But not everyone was pleased. The Pharisees hated it. They even began arguing among themselves, accusing one another of not doing enough to stop this fiasco. In their estimation, the whole world had gone after Jesus. And John has a subtle way of confirming they were right. In the very next sentence, he will note that Greeks were coming to Philip saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that neat? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Wouldn't you like to hear those words today? Wouldn't you like to see multitudes coming to praise Jesus? Because they had met men and women who had been raised from the grip of death by him. And heard witnesses testifying to what he had done. Now obviously, we don't have a Lazarus to show to the world. And none of us have been dead physically four days. But some of us certainly lived lives that smelled of death. And as King James would put it, really stinketh. And if we are in Christ, we have died, have we not? We've died to sin. And we have been buried in a watery grave of baptism. And we have 
risen to walk in newness of life. Now, our new life in him may not be as dramatic as was Lazarus, but surely the world would take note if they really saw and were told how Christ has taken us from death into life. If we would become visible exhibitions of his grace, as was Lazarus, who knows what might happen. Perhaps we would see multitudes coming, crying, Hosanna, save now, save me too. And in doing so, they would be inviting Jesus into their lives to save them from the eternal consequence of their sins. Would that this happened. Would that people saw us as risen from the dead. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I think we need to be confessing that, acknowledging that our old way of life was a way of death. We were dead in our sins. We were condemned in our sins. Death would be the end for us, and we were living in the shadow of death with no hope until we met Jesus. And he brought us life. He brought us out of death. He gave us an opportunity to, to be born again into eternal life, abundant life. We live in a day when death is all around us. We see horrible things happening in cities and in towns and in neighborhoods and families. We see horrible things happening even in nature as a consequence of, of everything out of kilter because of sin. Would that the world could see men and women who had been radically changed by Jesus. Don't be afraid to share your witness. Don't be afraid to acknowledge there was sin in your life. But Jesus made you live. If that would happen on a regular basis, not that we're holier than thou, not that we're in your face, just that we're sharing the life that we have. You know, Lazarus hid for a while. Maybe we've been hiding too long. Maybe it's time for us to walk with Jesus into the city and say, it's okay. You can come see me now. I've got something to share. And obviously, if you're here this morning, if you haven't experienced that triumphal entry of Christ into your life, if you haven't made room for the King of glory I give you the opportunity to do that. You know, we may not be waving palm branches this morning, but we are, and we've been trying to sing praises to the one who saved us. You know, those hymns may have sounded a little funny, and we didn't do it perfectly, but I trust Jesus heard them. 
And they were being requested from your heart. And they were being sung from our hearts. Let's sing praises to him. Let's worship him. Let's share him. And if you don't know the life that Jesus can give, I invite you to come to him. Make him your king. Let him endow you with salvation and give you peace. That's offered to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging a need to demonstrate to the world the fact that we are now alive in Christ. Give us courage. Let us step out from the shadows. Let us walk boldly with our hand in Jesus into the cities and into the workplace and into the schools and just simply say, we've been saved. Our sins have been forgiven. A life of death and destruction has been changed. And now we know life. Thank you, Father. Thank you for coming into our life. In Jesus' name. Amen.